Uh, good morning, everyone. This morning, I want to continue with the theme that I started uh, last week, which is to explore our ethical practice in more depth. And last time, I particularly focused on the theme of non-harming. So today, I want to speak generally some about ethical practice and its place in our larger training. And then focus on the second precept, especially, which is the precept of not taking that which is not given. And look at that both in terms of understanding its meaning traditionally, but also very much understanding its meaning in the uh, contemporary world and pointing to ways that we might practice. And my hope in all of this is that we're energized and hopefully inspired so we practice in the period uh, between now and the time I come back and have some focus uh, on a daily basis on practicing um, ethically. I mentioned last time that the traditional understanding of training is divided into three areas. There's what we generally call ethical training, and the translations aren't great. Uh, The word in the original language is sila, and, and I like to think of ethics more broadly as living a life of integrity Uh, moment to moment in all the parts of our lives. And the other two areas traditionally understood are meditation and wisdom. And so there really is this interrelated sense of training that is comprehensive, that helps us um, transform ourselves and our communities, uh, both in terms of our minds and bodies and emotions, but also in terms of our way of living, our actions in the world. Traditionally, the ethical training was carried forth by a number of guidelines which were collected in a uh, compendium called the Vinaya. Some of you may have seen this as a text. And for monks and nuns, traditionally, there were over 200 guidelines. Uh, A lot of them very, very uh, detailed in regard to very everyday uh, aspects of living. So for example, uh, monks and nuns in the original Indian context, and it's been preserved in Southeast Asia, could actually not store food. The Buddha wanted them to be dependent Uh, on the uh, offerings of their neighbors. A complicated system worked out. They also cannot uh, uh, use money. Uh, When I've lived in uh, Southeast Asia, I've seen that these were not always rigidly kept. (laughs) So I do remember being in taxis in Thailand and having monks offer the taxi cab driver a little funds. But uh, the general, and and some of these, of course, you know, probably made more sense 2,500, 2,600 years ago. But in any case, there are these training precepts which were were designed to help people uh, develop awareness and live lives of simplicity and integrity. For lay people, the focus in terms of the ethical precepts is on the five precepts that many of you are familiar with, the precepts. Uh, to uh, first, first precept we covered last time, not to harm, especially not to kill, but often generalized more broadly, not to harm others, not to harm oneself. And a lot of the uh, import of the precepts is not just to have them uh, be, as it were, other regarding, but also applied to oneself. When I take the ethical precept not to harm, are there ways I harm myself? And I want to act in those ways to uh, not harm myself as well. The second precept is not to take that which is not given. I'll be focusing on that today. The third precept could be broadly said to be care around sexuality, um, parallel in some ways to the fifth precept, which is care around uh, what I call substances which shift consciousness. The usual translation of the word in the original language would be translated as intoxicants. 
And then the fourth precept is about uh, a skill and wisdom in how one speaks, uh, sometimes translated as right speech or wise speech or skillful speech. So those are the five guidelines. And in a way, it's a little bit arbitrary. I'm wondering, just when I give that list, are there any others that occur to you that you think should be on the list? I mean, not to be arrogant about it. I mean, the Buddha gave five precepts, which have been around for 2,600 years. But any others occur to you that seem really major that are not on the list? Anyone? Anything occur to anyone? Yeah. If you can just say it in a phrase or two, not a whole explanation. Uh, being aware of yourself and others. And yeah. Be, yeah, being aware of oneself and others. So something, yeah, about interconnection. So we're, we're not going to have a vote at the end on whether we should <laughs> adopt these and send it to whatever, Buddhist headquarters or whatever. You know. Anyone else have a thought on what might be a pre, another precept that's not quite on there? Yeah. Be generous. Be generous, right? Yeah. I remember when uh, I spent a lot of time going to meetings of the uh, International Network of Engaged Buddhists, mostly meeting in Thailand, and one of my colleagues uh, uh, took the, uh, the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, someone some of you may know who teaches quite a bit, named Santa Caro Bhikkhu. And uh, he, he was an American, and he he developed the uh, noble fourteenfold uh, path, <laughs> which added, you know, themes like right education, you know, right ecology, and so forth. So, anyway. uh, but yeah, that occurred to me that uh, there there might be themes that uh, would be helpful to bring out. I think five keeps it simple. We can focus on it and so forth, and we'll see that they're very interrelated. Maybe one more. Yeah. <coughs> In all its many forms. Do not litter. Okay, so we have three, three nominations. <laughs> okay, do not litter. Uh, probably uh, meaning many things. Yeah, we'll see. Um, and so the the precepts are can be understood in a lot of different ways. They're I think primarily not to be understood as rules held above our heads that we're supposed to conform to, but they're rather best understood as training guidelines. And training guidelines means that we will frequently fall short of the guideline. Okay, Training guideline not to harm. I try to take that guideline and then I find that invariably I do harm. Actually, uh, last night when I was working on the talk, I accidentally smushed a little bug that was on my paper. It felt awful, <laughs> right? But it happened, right? And we know that um, we do things smaller or larger, but the important thing is that this is a practice, and so it's a training. It's not a group of rules that if we go against, we thunder strikes and we're smote down and, you know, or we get very judgmental about ourselves. It's not really in that... That's not really the way that it's skillful to hold it. It's a, training, it's a training guideline best done in community where people are comparing notes. That's partly my intention here. It also, a theme I brought out last time, these, these are guidelines which in a way help make us safer to ourselves and others. A lot of the guidelines are about creating more safety. And so... I know, uh, um, I've heard stories of even at the height of the uh, uh, Vietnam War uh, in Southeast Asia, monasteries would be places of safety that people could go to. And they would be, uh, one could at monasteries leave valuables just anywhere and you would know that they would be safe. And so there's something about the ethical guidelines related to having more safety, both outer and inner, because that inner safety is required for this, uh, this practice of opening, of going more deeply.
we can't do that unless there's some degree of safety, unless there's enough safety to open up. And so the ethical precepts really help in that way. I like to frame our ethical practice in three main ways uh, in terms of pointing to how we practice. And I did this last time in terms of looking at the practice of non-harming. The first aspect is we can use the guidelines to, as it were, um, give us feedback about our immediate behavior, about our action in the world. I have a guideline about uh, skillful speech, and I just have a, I had a conversation, and right in the middle of it, I think to myself, am I following the precept of wise speech? And at that moment, I'm illuminated, <laughs> and kind, gentle, mellifluous speech comes rolling out of my tongue. Right, so, uh, either that, or at three in the morning, I wake up and say, was that skillful speech? I don't think so. <laughs> but the, so the guidelines can work in various ways. They can work to correct or give us feedback about our behavior. I, call, I would call that the outer dimension of practice with the precept. There's also an inner dimension of practice with the precept where we can look carefully at certain moments. What is my motivation? You know, I feel in that moment I'm rehearsing unskillful speech, and I look to myself, okay, Donald, what's happening right now? What am I feeling? What's my motivation? What's going on inside? And so the guidelines can be spurs for uh, deeper investigation. And there is, this is where we begin to see this interrelationship between the ethical practice and our mindfulness practice and our wisdom practice. These are all interrelated. And uh, in a very important part of ethical practice is looking into motivation. And it's just tracking one's mind, tracking what's going on. You know, I like sometimes, like when I'm at meetings, to keep a running mindfulness log of what's going on in my mind. That can be very helpful. That is very helpful, you know, particularly to watch for unskillful speech. Or we can look when, when I'm feeling, when, that, when I sense that I may be saying something which is harmful, or doing something, saying something harmful to myself or others, I can look into what's going on, what's present. You know, maybe there's some distress. Maybe there's a lot of anger. What's going on? The precepts can often keep us from acting when we know that we're out of balance. That's the sense they, they increase safety for both self and other. And so it's very valuable to have these ethical precepts be in one's life in some way. You know, to, in many communities, they're renewed once a month. In one community I remember visiting, they were repeated collectively in the community once a week. It could be something you do at home. Some people even do it every day. That you could do it once a week and just bring these to mind. Or, as we're doing, work with them. Let's say I come back in two weeks, work with <coughs> the precept on not taking that which is not given in the next two weeks. I, ha I find it helpful to work uh, with one at a time, especially if one hasn't done that before. And that can be very helpful. So we looked at the uh, first precept of non-harming, or let me mention, there's one other. So I, I call this second area uh, inner practice, and there's also a third area which I call the social dimension of ethical practice, which is there in the original. It's not strongly highlighted in the original tradition, but there are pas plenty of passages in the original uh, statements of the Buddha where it's not just about one's personal behavior, but it's also about what's happening in one's community. And so there are lines that say, do not kill, do not approve of others killing. And I mentioned last time that a lot of people in the last 30 or 40 years have wanted to uh, increase that sense of the social dimension 
of ethical practice. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, in his version of the first precept on non-harming, says, do not kill, do not let others kill. Which starts, you can start to see how it's a challenging guideline to work with. If I take the guideline not to let others kill, how do I follow that up? What does my practice look like if I think I'm really living an ethical life? Yeah. So there, there's, there can be a lot there. And so that social sense of the, of the ethical precepts, you can probably feel that can stretch us, right? And in a lot of other spiritual traditions, I think particularly in the last 50, 80 years in Jewish and Christian tradition, there's also been a very strong emphasis on the social dimension of ethical life. It's sometimes uh, been phrased in terms of questions, how can I live with integrity where the institutions don't always have integrity, or the culture doesn't have integrity? You know, and it, it's like a koan, isn't it? It's a deep question. How can I live in, with integrity where I see a lot happening around me is not in alignment ethically in various ways? How do I respond to that? It's a deep question, right? It's something which I'm sure all of us uh, grapple with in certain ways. You know? And naming this third area practice as, yes, that is a significant part of practice, Ethical practice is not just about my personal, more isolated, face-to-face behavior. But it also involves how I respond in my community and my <coughs> larger actions. And, and we'll see as we get, go further, it, it actually brings some challenges to our sense of practice and some, some need for working together. The first precept, non-harming, often taken to be the most important precept, and many people interpret the other precepts, the second through the fifth precepts, as variants of non-harming. That the ethical precepts generally are often understood as a deep commitment and deep investigation of non-harming oneself, not harming others, and finding ways to explore what that means, what that means. The Buddha says non-harming is the distinguishing mark of the Dharma of the teachings on liberation. And the Buddha applied non-harming to all beings, not just to humans. Abandoning the onslaught on breathing beings, one abstains from this without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all beings. So you can hear compassion. You can hear sensitivity in that statement. You can hear um, a wide scope of one sense of ethical practice. And so last time we looked into how one might practice more, what I was calling in a more outer way, in a more inner way, in a more social way. And we'll, we'll follow that up looking at the uh, second precept. The second precept is usually translated as not taking that which is not given. And this is a, I'll, I'll read the a translation of how that precept appears traditionally. Maybe, maybe nice to hear the original. I'll, I'll do this in chanting mode. Adina dana veramani sikapadam samadhi For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. So what does that mean? I mean, we can, on a first glimpse, see that as not stealing, right? That's how it's usually translated. Um, and there, traditionally, there was an emphasis on only receiving something when it was offered. And so monks and nuns had few possessions, have few possessions, and they would typically be understood as the four requisites, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. But they were only able to accept those when they were offered. And so there were, there were these practices of every morning walking to the nearby village 
and being offered the food for the day. You know, in, a, uh, in silence, at dawn. And then typically the village, this still goes on in Southeast Asia, village people would wake up at dawn every day. This is part of their life. Small children would learn generosity by giving a little bit of food to the monks or nuns. And so there was that sense of living by what was offering. So living, therefore, with a deep sense of interconnection. And they would also, and, and, there, and this is part, there was also rituals, even when, let's say, lay people would um, hear teachings, there would be a little ritual where the lay people would uh, um, ask for the teachings ask for the teachings to be freely offered by the monks or nuns. There's a little ritual, which some of you may have experienced. It's still in quite a number of traditions. I know when I've studied with Tibetan teachers, it's a very similar ritual. There's part of the chant that one does before the teaching is one chants, please offer the teachings. And so there's there's that sense of the precept being right there, the sense of interconnection being right there. Um, For lay people, it was especially interpreted in terms of not stealing, not taking that which was not given, especially through some ethical, unethical or fraudulent means. So it was more interpreted similar to how, you know, we have the um, one of the Ten Commandments in the Jewish and Christian traditions of not stealing, not taking that which is not given. I'll say more about this a little later, but the, the precepts, as I mentioned last time, are articulated in a more negative way. In other words, don't do this, don't harm, don't take that which is not given. But they're understood more positively as well. And so the second precept, not taking that which is not given, counters unskillful behavior, but it also encourages the development of generosity, the wisdom of interconnection, and the sense of um, renunciation at times, that do I really need this? Am I acting out of greed and grasping? So we'll come back to that because those those, uh, ways of practicing with the second precept point to more of that inner dimension that I was mentioning before, that inner dimension of practice. So we can look at that. We have the, the outer practice can be to ask myself, when am I taking that which is not given? And again, for a lot of us, there may be occasional times when we do something that falls under the category really of stealing. But for many of us, that maybe that's not occurring. But what is interesting is to look at the gray areas, right? When am I at work? surfing the internet. Horror upon horror. <laughs> you know, or what are the small ways that I might not take, that I might take things without it being freely offered? And maybe there are small things in our everyday life. We take something, I don't know, small things. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe there's agreements, but maybe there's not. Maybe I take something from my roommate without asking or I do something uh, um, like that, or I um, on my income tax returns, there's a little bit of give. (laughs) So that might fall under the precept, right? We might ask ourselves, I don't know about that. We might really look in that way. And there are other aspects that are actually quite significant that I'll come back to from the social dimension. So the inner practice, the outer practice, would be to just keep on remembering the practice. And there might be parts of our behavior that we've got used to that would come into question. You know, just in our everyday experience. And then there's the inner practice, which as I mentioned, could be linked with the cultivation of generosity, which, which was mentioned as one of our 
potential further precepts, you know, that I might actively uh, develop generosity. This is also part of the spirit of this precept, that I might go out of my way to offer. So, you know, um, you know, I remember there was this study, uh, there was this study where two, two groups of people were given, I forget what the amount was, but maybe they were given $100 or something. And one group was given it with the instruction to give that money away. And another group was, was given the instruction to do as they saw fit with the money. And, the, and then they basically tested the people later for a degree of happiness. <laughs> and they found that the people who offered the money were way happier, at least in you know, kind of a temporary sense, that, there's that, that generosity, of course, is one of the core qualities to be developed. So it could be a practice you do you know, in various ways. It could be through giving to organizations. It could be through giving on the street. Sometimes I know I've just uh, always carried around things that I could give, give away when I'm walking on the street in Berkeley or Oakland or wherever. You know? And it's an interesting practice. You know, just to set aside some quality of giving like that. We might also uh, try to look when there's some degree of greed or grasping. You know, maybe it's not stealing, but is there greed or grasping in the mind? Because the precept is really connected with that. When is there strong wanting or greed or grasping? And I was thinking of this experience, which I've mentioned at times, which I had... Uh, uh, a number of years ago, when, when uh, Diana Winston, uh, who's also a Spirit Rock teacher, and I, we taught a class on uh, greed management. We had very, very low enrollment. I think we had very good publicity, and we only ended up with five people who wanted to study greed management. We had two teachers, so. My memory is that it was entirely Donna, so actually it didn't cost anything, and still people didn't sign up. But it was, we were really into it, because we really wanted to explore the nature of greed and grasping, and I, we got to see more clearly what is the nature of greed or grasping. Because this is part, this is connected with the second precept. It's really to study this, and it was fascinating that we got to see more clearly by studying this over, it was a five-week class, and you know, I think I've mentioned sometimes the, the final exam was to do silent walking meditation through the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond at El Cerrito Plaza, <laughs> which was a, a shattering experience. <laughs> uh, I'll come back to that, but, um, but what, we, what we found out in the, uh, in the examination, and this is something for you to investigate, what does greed or grasping look like internally? Study it. What's it like? We found that often when we were in the throes of greed or grasping, there was a way that it was uh, out of control, compulsive. You know? uh, there was this wanting which was just, I have to. It had this I have to quality. Uh, it was also very self-centered when in the midst of greed and grasping, other people's needs are not present. Awareness of other people's needs, maybe even other people, don't matter. You know? So there is a way, you, and, and again, we can think of it in terms of individual greed, but when we look to the social dimension, we'll see what happens when greed gets institutionalized. <coughs> and so we can we could see, okay, it was, there was a quality of self-centeredness. Other people's needs don't matter. Often, there, with, when greed is present, there's an obliviousness to consequences. Right? I need this, I have to have this. And there's not, in other words, there's not clear thinking. There's not the wisdom factor. And sometimes we found there was a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. Right? That was sometimes present. And we, we as part of our practice, at advanced, for the advanced practice with greed was to put ourselves in situations where greed might arise for us and see what the mind did. So this is, this was therefore the final exam, the bed, bath, and beyond walking meditation. You know, and it was, it was newly opened, so I had never been there. And it was just amazing to watch my mind, gosh, I'm developing wanting for products that five minutes ago I didn't even know existed. <laughs> 
So it's very interesting to look at that and compare notes. So we, we can practice in that way. We can really, you know, the second precept is partly developing generosity, partly looking at greed and grasping, partly shifting our behavior externally. And there's also a way in which we uh, can bring the practice of the second precept to the social dimension. I find this particularly uh, challenging. Uh, again, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, has been one of the people who's most clearly expressed what we might call a social reading of the second precept. This is how he framed it, and a lot of people have done this. This is what he says. Do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. He thinks this is completely a contemporary way to express the second precept. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. He also, another way he phrases this is, possess nothing that should belong to others, but also prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. Wow, if you take that on, what do you do? And the Buddha also had, I think, a social reading. It's, again, not so much articulated strongly in tradition, but this is from, again, one of the early texts, the Sutta Nipata. He says, let a, let a practitioner uh, not only not steal, but not cause others to steal, nor approve of others, te- of others stealing. So the second and third of those have a social dimension, a community dimension. You know? And again, we could interpret what those mean. People like Thich Nhat Hanh or others uh, express it in different ways. This is uh, Sulak Sivaraksha from Thailand, who, who I worked with quite a bit. We may not literally steal in our face-to-face interactions, but do we allow the rich countries to exploit the poor countries through the workings of the international banking system and the international economic order? Do we allow industrial societies to explore agrarian societies, the first world to explore, exploit the third world, the rich to exploit the poor generally? He thinks that that is part of the second precept. You know, I was thinking of a few areas where, again, this is, this is, this is challenging. And again, I, uh, there, there are different ways to respond to this. Part of, I think part of it is to look, are there actions I can take in this regard? Again, we can think of it both in terms of outer and inner response. What's my, what are my attitudes? What's my thinking? Now, I was thinking this in terms of three areas um, in contemporary life that are challenging. You know, one of them is the fact that um, many of us living in the U.S. have received benefits, sometimes at the cost of other people's lives, or when others have not done well. You know, I was thinking of a few areas of this. I was thinking, some of you know that uh, in the 1930s and 40s, there were a lot of new provisions for Social Security, for, um, there was, uh, for housing support, uh, for, and the GI Bill, which uh, brought benefit to a large number of people. Uh, many of you may not know that the, all, all of those supports, which have a lot to do with the very significant increase in wealth among many people in this country, generally did not apply to African Americans. Uh, for example, Social Security uh, was deliberately, and this was a lot due to the influence of the Southern politicians, that's how it happened, but Social Security, for example, was, uh, um, you know, giving income after retirement was deliberately uh, structured so it did not apply to agricultural workers. Of course, large majority were African American, large majority of African Americans and Latinos were agricultural workers. This was deliberate. It wasn't an oversight, right? It was, it was quite deliberate, came from the Southern politicians. It was what Roosevelt needed to do to get the whole thing passed. Right? I didn't know all of this until researching in the last few years. You know, there's also, um, again, uh, subsidizing low-cost ho- uh, low housing loans uh, was not evenly distributed. You know, that generally, um, uh, you know, the figures were between 1934 and 1962, uh, only 2% of the benefits for low-cost housing went to non-white families. 
you know, and the percentages are much higher. It was skewed for different reasons, partly in the laws, partly in the administration. Some of you also may know the GI Bill gave tremendous help to uh, veterans returning, uh, both in terms of housing and in terms of going to college, you know. And my father uh, was a veteran, went to college on the GI Bill. You know? and, um, and yet the GI Bill, although it benefited some uh, African-American families, there were a lot of ways that it was designed, partly through local administration, uh, partly by the fact that uh, you know, the, uh, the housing provisions and the educational provisions went at a very, very low rate to African-Americans. Yeah. So we can ask uh, if one was not in those classes. And there are a lot of complexities here. I know, like my father got the GI Bill, but he wasn't able to go to medical school because of quotas against Jewish people of Jewish background. Right? So it's complex, right? There's complexities there. Um, but we can ask ourselves, what do we make of the fact that some of us have received benefits where others have been denied them? Does that come under the second precept? And I was also thinking of how much do, does our, uh, do our um, way of life, standard of living, depend on people in other countries not living well? Does that come under the second precept? And there is a, a song I wanted to play. Some of you know by uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock. Some of you know there's a song called Are My Hands Clean? Some of you may know this song. I want to play it. It's just about two minutes. And it may be a little bit hard to understand, but it's basically a song about purchasing a blouse at a department store. <laughs> and what are all the causal factors that made possible this blouse coming to me at a pretty cheap rate at my department store? Yeah. yeah, all the good stuff in bed. I wear garments stretched by hands from all over louder. the yeah. world. 35% cotton, 65% polyester. The journey begins in Central America in the cotton fields of El Salvador. In a project soaked in blood, pesticide sprayed workers toiled in a broiling sun, pulling cotton for $2 a day. Then we move on up to another rung, Cargill. A top 40 trading conglomerate takes the cotton through the Panama Canal. Up the eastern seaboard, coming to the U.S. of A for the first time. In South Carolina, at the Burlington Mills. Joins a shipment of polyester filament courtesy of the New Jersey Petrochemical Mills of DuPont. DuPont's transfer filament begins in the South American country of Venezuela, where oil riggers bring up oil from the earth for six dollars a day. Then Exxon, largest oil company in the world, upgrades the product in the country of Trinidad and Tobago. Then back into the Caribbean and Atlantic seas to the factories of DuPont, on the way to the Burlington Mills. In South Carolina, to meet the cotton from the blood-soaked fields of El Salvador. In South Carolina, Burlington factories hung with the business of weaving oil and cotton into miles of fabric for Sears, who takes his family back into the Caribbean Sea, headed for Haiti this time. May she be one day soon. From the Court of Prince Palace, third world women toil doing piecework to see the specifications for three dollars a day. My sisters make my blouse, it leaves the third world for the last time. Coming back into the sea to be sealed in plastic for me, this third world sister. And I go to the Sears department store where I buy my blouse on sale for 20% discount. Oh, my hands clean. In the morning. <laughs> so 
Uh, 20% discount, are my hands clean, right? So more questions than responses, right? But this is another area, right? And, and I was thinking, am I on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Then the third area, not to be, not to get too much into the challenging areas, but um, I was thinking also of climate change, right? And the question of uh, are we, by our consumption, taking a thing, taking resources and a good life away from the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation? Does that come under the second precept? I think so, right? And so. These are challenging. This last area is quite challenging. So the invitation is to practice in these three areas. First, in a more outer way, looking at how the precepts guides one's uh, outer actions. Maybe helps one to refrain from unskillful actions, lets one look more carefully at how one's acting, especially in one's face-to-face everyday interaction. The second area especially invites me to look at what's happening in the inner way if I find myself uh, not following the precept. When greed arises, grasping arises. Uh, on the other hand, it might be deliberately developing generosity, devel deliberately developing a sense of interconnection. Sometimes practicing what we would call renunciation. And then the third area, the social area, what might that look like? Again, I think we can divide it into outer actions and looking at inner consciousness and attitudes. You know, what's there for me? A lot of times we just actually don't pay attention to the social dimension, right? It just is off the radar. What happens when we do? What happens when we listen to that song? I could feel a certain level of uh, emotion and even even some discomfort, right? What happens when we look there? What happens in inner way? And then what hap how do we respond in an outward way, the social dimension? A lot of people have tried to uh, uh, give ways of acting that are more responsive to following the second precept, you know. So there might be approaches to ensuring that uh, companies don't ruthlessly exploit workers, right? A lot of movements in that way, or fair trade products and so forth. A lot of people have tried to develop ethical ways of relating to people in other countries who have very different standards of living, you know, or uh, not acting in ways which impact future generations. A lot of challenges in, the, in that last area. And, but the, the basis for that inquiry, I think, has to be how we also look just in our daily lives, in our ordinary interactions. So uh, it's challenging, isn't it? If you really want to live this way, it forces us to look at certain parts of our lives that often we don't look at. So I'll invite you to, for this next period of time, if you so choose, to, to renew your own uh, commitment to this precept. And come back, we'll come back in two weeks and compare notes, just like in the discussion we'll have in a moment. I'll invite people to compare any notes from the last week of looking at the first precept. So I'll just finish with, the, with uh, a reading from the Buddha, summarizing living ethically. Not to commit wrong, to practice all good, to keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of the Buddha. I want to invite any now any uh, reflections, any thoughts, uh, questions, and we'll use the microphone. So we'll, let's wait till the microphone comes around.
please, uh, in the back, and then right in front of, in front of that person. Uh, this is a question. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were saying about unskillful speech. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about a situation with another person's yeah. unskillful speech. Yeah. So what is like the ethical or appropriate way to deal with others' harmful ways or others' unskillful speech that you have a strong reaction to? Yeah. So how to respond... Uh, both in terms of speech, but it could be in terms of the other precepts as well. What do I do when I see someone else taking that which is not given? Um, and there, uh, there, it, a lot of it's going to depend on the relationship. You know, within the monastic community historically, there actually was guidance. I think I think there's a there's a passage that's often translated from the uh, you know, text from 2,600 years ago where the heading is how to admonish another skillfully. <laughs> uh, but a lot of it's going to, in, in, in our lives, a lot of it's going to depend on the relationship. Right? And, and so it's actually a challenge, it's a, it's a very good question, a very challenging question uh, to know, again, um, if there's a kind of relationship where one gives feedback to each other, which would indicate quite a, a, a good friendship, right? You know, it's something I, and I know, I would say even in our, in our teaching community here at Spirit Rock, if I, I don't, I think this could, is acknowledged by many people, we don't always give feedback to each other very well. Not that we're breaking the ethical precepts right and left, but, um, you know, even in terms of, um, feedback not to do so much even with the precepts, but it's not easy, I think, in this culture. Sometimes there's a culture of niceness, right? Uh, more than sometimes. Um, and and we, we don't have uh, necessarily good ways of uh, giving feedback, speaking honestly. I think the first thing would be that one needs to see what the state of one's own mind is, whether one's reactive. Right in giving the feedback, and they, you know, and I know in Thich Nhat Hanh's community, they have a guideline which they accept as a community, where uh, if one is angry and there's a conflict, one makes a commitment to resolve it within a week, not not necessarily to resolve it, but at least to talk about it within a week. So, and I know when I've worked with groups over um, you know month-long training periods, we've often adopted group guidelines in which we agreed to work with conflict skillfully. But most of us don't have good s skills for that. So you know, kind of, there's a whole set of skills for, for being better with conflict that a lot of us don't have necessarily. So it's going to depend on the relationship, but I think that uh, generally a healthy community, there would be that kind of opportunity to do that. Um, and again, uh, Maybe we have that in some relationships, but not in others. Yeah, so it's a great question, and maybe others have thoughts on that. I think we had someone right in front and then in front here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this uh, past weekend, I was with a friend who had parked in a handicap spot and used a handicap placard that belonged to her mother, and her mother was not there. And she seems to be doing this quite a bit. I've heard from her husband. And I um, didn't want to make myself a judge to her. However, I did um, point out the fact that um, if you get caught doing that, there will be a hefty fine. <laughs> <laughs> and she had read about Pete. The, this had been this had yeah. happened um, where the police had actually stopped people and yeah. and gave them a ticket. And I think it's hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I didn't judge her in that way. Mm. I just felt like you know that she should be aware that there is a consequence, and there's also a moral consequence. And she's quite religious. So I was surprised that she <laughs> had done this. Um, so I don't know if there's a question here or how. Well, I don't I think want. It's yeah. partly a response to the last question, really, from your own experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, that uh, again, uh, so much is going to depend on the relationship and you could observe this person purports to be religious. What's that about, right? And, and then maybe it was, a, maybe it sounds like it might have been a very skillful means. You, you, you uh, respond through um, appealing to self-interest <laughs> rather than to ethics. <laughs> Interesting. And, yeah. But again, so much, this is a challenging one, isn't it? So much depends on the relationship. Yeah. So we have up front and then in, in the, with the red shirt. Thank you. <clears throat> One's also to do with skillful admonishment. Sometimes we go for a little walk along the, uh, the little duck pond near uh, San Rafael, and yeah. there's a, you know, lots of. Uh, yeah, you know, ducks and geese around, and there's lots of signs saying, you know, don't feed the animals, don't feed the ducks, don't feel. Yeah. And then you find people, you know, little families coming and feeding, and often they have little children with them. The children get a lot of fun out of feeding the uh, yeah. the the, you know, the ducks, uh, but you know, it's really not, you know, it's not in the interest of the ducks or anything else for that to happen. It just seems, uh, you know, difficult to approach people. Often it's not their English may not be their first language, and uh, you know, may not, they may not really understand the signs and consequences. So I just wondered always, you know, um, should one go up and try and say something uh, or just leave it and let it go, you know? Yeah. Yeah, again, it's in, um, as some people sometimes respond to questions like that, the answer is yes. yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, I could see... Uh, uh, it would be a skillful means. Here, it's actually, there's very, this goes back to the first precept, there's actually, we know that there's concrete harm that's done to the ducks. It's different, you know, it seems a little, little more there than with some of the other examples, right? And so, um, but again, uh, it's, we don't have the social context, generally, where that is normal behavior. Call it an individualist society, right? Each, you know, for someone else to speak to someone about another person's behavior, if you don't, even if you know the person, goes outside of the dominant social norms. So it's, and yeah, and, and the cost is maybe we are less ethical, right? So there's a, there's a cost to all this, right? So it's a really interesting question. I, I would, uh, personally, I think I would help the ducks. <laughs> and try it even you know even at the cost of some social awkwardness but yeah but because there because there the the we know that there is harm right? so but it's but you're right i mean you're really getting into it's challenging isn't it you know if this if this is challenging some of those other social issues i mentioned are really challenging right? so please yeah. so um i'm going to offer a suggestion yeah. Um, I am a 40-year member of a union and an organizer. Yeah. And um, at the beginning of every memorandum of understanding or contract that uh, my union participates in, there is the line, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Yeah. Um, money is essentially an energy, mm -hmm. and just having a walk through the parking lot, there's a million dollars worth of cars out there. Mm-hmm. The way that you choose to expend that energy can be a force for great social good. Yeah. If you take the time to understand the sourcing and the implications of the sourcing of the various materials that we all end up consuming yeah. in greater or lesser amounts. If you look for the if you look for the union or the unity and try to avoid putting your money into things that lessen the greater good. Yeah. Also, if you happen to be a person that has money to invest, there is a large sector of the investment community now that runs all of their investments through the sort of moral equation right, that right. we're talking about. And um, you don't just have to give it to your advisor and say, make me money. Right. You can say, Please make me money, but make it ethical money. Right. These and a hundred other solutions are available. Right. 
without doing much more than tapping on your computer. Thank you. Right. And your name again is? I'm Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. Very, a lot of uh, very practical um, suggestions and very, very much uh, consonant with, with the second precept. I think what it points to is also that, uh, in a way, uh, education about these issues is not widespread. We can learn. We can learn about options. And probably a lot of you here know about a lot of options. You know, ethical, so-called ethical investing has been around for a long time. Uh, to know that the products that one buys are connected with um, fairness for the workers is something that's been there more and more. Um, you know, a lot of attention more recently to uh, not supporting companies that harm the, harm the environment in terms of climate issues. That's there more and more. But it takes a certain level of education. And by and large, we, we, we actually uh, don't know where our things come from. We don't know the web of causality with a lot of our things. There's a, what, a film called The Story of Stuff. And I, I had a book which, which I got some years ago which was very interesting, which took like 10 or 20 everyday items like a t-shirt or shoes and gave the complete history of where that comes from. It's pretty startling sometimes, right, to know that. That should be part of our education, right? And it's something that if we're ethically concerned and want to apply the second precept, especially in terms of the social dimension, that would be, uh, that w we would want to learn more, right? We'd want to learn more. There are a lot of options. There are a lot of people who are thinking in, in ways similar to what Jeff mentioned, right? Probably a lot of us here maybe even are involved with those efforts. So, um, but it's challenging just to, just to get clothes or food, the second precepts involved. Why isn't it simpler? Hmm. Why can't I just live my life without ethics? being there so much, right? We might think that, right? Yeah. yeah. Great. So uh, let's just, I um, want to have just a final reflection right here. And I'll invite you, how many of you would like to uh, have a focus on the second precept? You're welcome to include the first precept. But how many of you would like to have a focus on the second precept in the next two weeks? You can, great. And you can bring it to mind uh, in the morning. You know, put it on your refrigerator. Uh, the second precept, bring it to mind. Could bring it to mind once or twice a day. Maybe you want to be more educated in ways we were mentioning uh, earlier. And to really take, take this as a focus of practice the next two weeks. So I'll invite us just to uh, bring to mind now whatever seemed most helpful from the morning, and acknowledging that for some of us, maybe this sparks something in a totally different area, not necessarily connected with what we were talking about. Just see what was most important for you and what intention or intentions you have coming out of the morning session. So we close by uh, uh, remembering through this traditional uh, dedication of merit that we typically do at the end. It's really an intention practice. We remember, and sometimes we put our hands like this. You're free to do that if you wish. Um, we remember that we practice uh, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may the session this morning be of benefit to us may be, be of benefit to people in our lives, even possibly if they're skillfully admonished. <laughs> and may it be a benefit more broadly out in the world, may it be a benefit to all beings. 
and mentioning all beings circles back to ourselves, for we are part of all beings.